This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Here we are still progressing through our Lenten season as we prepare ourselves through these pillars of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving to to have a deeper participation in the Paschal mystery. Through that Paschal mystery, to be brought into this sharing in the divine nature. And so let's look at what these pillars are. Last week we talked about prayer. Next week we're going to talk about fasting. So that means this week, of course, we're going to tackle that topic of almsgiving in a particular way. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out is that in this season of Lent, this is not the only time we practice these three pillars of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. This is the time for us to kind of re-up and reevaluate and prepare ourselves for the rest of this year. Prayer, of course, that relationship that we have with God. Fasting, that relationship that we have within ourselves of self-mastery. And then almsgiving, our care for the common good. Our conversation today is with Mark Redmond, who has worked for the last 40 years in the field of caring for homeless and at-risk youth. He's currently the executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont, and he's spent time wrestling with what it means to live out this life of almsgiving and of caring for the common good. Uh, I heard his story first on the Moth Radio Hour over on NPR, and it was intriguing. But all the more intriguing, and and this is the way the providence of God works out, Uh, two weeks later, he pops up having liked uh, the Facebook page for Outside the Walls, Uh, and then a couple of weeks after that sends me a message uh, letting me know about his new book. He has a, a new memoir entitled Called a Memoir, through which he tells the story of his journey into this life of caring for the common good. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on air today. TL, it is great to meet you, and it is great to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. So we hold up uh, certain saints, uh, St. Mother Teresa, uh, St. Damien of Molokai, St. Catherine Drexel, who lived out this philanthropic care for the, the poor and the marginalized and the outcast. And the church puts them forward as examples uh, for all of us, but it's it's easy for us to say, oh, well, you know what? They had a special call that I can never aspire to. They they were somehow, uh, you know, the kind of the superheroes of of the Christian life. But they're meant to serve as examples to draw our eyes, to spark our Catholic imagination, uh, to help us understand what it means to live out that universal call to holiness that all of us share by virtue of our baptism. Uh, and to inform the way that that then we live out that call. So I'm curious, do you have any specific saints that have captured your attention, that help inform the way that you have served over these last decades uh, in your local community? That's a great question, and I would definitely say it's interesting you mentioned uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta. And uh, I remember I joined the faith community at Covenant House in 1981. And right before I got there, I think maybe two months before I got there, she visited Covenant House, you know, mm-hmm. and spent some time in the faith community there. And that's some of the young people staying at Covenant House. So she was definitely an influence. That's somebody who I still pray to every morning. Mm-hmm. I would say another saint is Dorothy Day. Yeah, Covenant House was in New York City. 
She had passed away a year before I joined the uh, faith community there. I remember going to the Catholic worker to the Friday night, uh, you know, they would have these talks. And that's somebody else I pray to also, you know. So Damien Molokai, I remember reading a book about Damien Molokai in like 1979-1980. So I would say these are the people and then of course there's, you know, living saints. There was the yeah. woman who kind of enticed me into Covenant House. Her name is Marge Corfin. In my mind she's saying my own grandmother is somebody I pray to every day. A very holy woman who supported my decision to leave the business world and to serve the poor homeless youth. So so those would be the main people, I, I would say. So we have this, the, these specific saints who have left everything behind uh, and felt this very specific call into, uh, into this life of service. I wonder, though, and you might have a perspective on this, I wonder how often we make excuses for ourselves of say, well, I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not St. Damien of Molokai. So, so maybe, uh, you know, it's, this isn't just, isn't what I'm called to. And by being closed to that, to that idea or to say I'm too busy or to make excuses for it, we end up missing a call that might be a specific call to us. That's true. So I give talks a lot of time to different groups, business groups, some other church groups. And people will say to me, I, I'm not in a position to do what you did. You know, I have a family to support or I have a career in whatever the career is. And I would say, listen, you know, if you ask God for direction, you know, what is it you want me to do with my life or with my time? That doesn't, this is my, everybody has, I think, a specific call. God may want you to, I always use the example mentor. We're always looking for mentors for kids, you know, kids who, maybe being raised by a single parent, kids who are starting to get into trouble or drop out of school. I'm like, that's something you can do, or you can help out at the food shelf, or you can deliver meals. It doesn't have to be leaving everything, you know? And I believe if, if you really do ask from your heart, what is it, Lord, you want me to do? You will get an answer. I can't tell you how God is going to answer that. You know, it might be through somebody you meet. It might be something you see on TV. It might be in a dream that you have while you're sleeping. But but God will answer that if you really sincerely ask, what is it you want me to do? And you speak from experience because this is a question that you asked and an answer that was given that you have laid down for us in this new memoir that you've written. Uh, over the pandemic, you, you, as other people were learning to bake sourdough bread or pick up other hobbies, you wrote down this story of your life in a book titled Called a Memoir. Share with us the broad strokes of your story of being raised in a Catholic home entering into business and then discerning that call uh, unfolding to you uh, to enter into this life of service that's ended up here now at uh, Spectrum Youth and Family Services. Sure. So I grew up in a, a Catholic, Irish Catholic family on Long Island in the suburbs, and I'm the oldest of five. We all went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic college. And uh, my dad was a businessman, very successful businessman, working uh, in commercial real estate in Manhattan. All my brothers have jobs uh, on in, in the financial services industry, Wall Street, wherever. And uh, I was in college. I was at Villanova. I wasn't involved with campus ministry. I don't even know what the campus ministry office was. If you ask me, I played rugby, which at that time was about the most opposite of campus ministry you could get. 
I had a pretty amazing encounter. I read in the newspaper my senior year of college about a, a man walking from Guatemala to this hometown of Philadelphia. And then a few weeks later, uh, we played rugby against Georgetown. We lost on Sunday morning. We're all waiting to go back. We're all hung over. And I see this van with all these kids and balloons. And there's a young man. It's obviously some kind of a walkathon. And here, who is it but that person who I'd read about in the newspaper? And then I went to church on Sunday night, a couple of weeks later, Villanova. And the priest says, the uh, homily today is going to be given by this man who's walking from, it was him. And I always point there. I go back to my reunions every five years. And I go back to that chapel and I look at where I was because I remember where I was that night. And I think that is where it all started, you know, because I remember hearing that man showed some video and some pictures of the devastation in Guatemala. And he talked about how I don't have money. I don't have success, but I am so happy because, you know, I'm doing God's work. And that I always look at that and I think. I remember the mass ended, everybody filed out to whatever, go to the dorms or go to the library to study. And I remember thinking, where are they all going? How can, how can everybody just get up and leave after hearing what that, what that person said? Now, why did that strike me to you, right? Like, yeah. I don't know why, you know? But I always look at that was really where the seed was planted that God, I think, put that desire in my heart. Because up to that point, it was the business world, working on Wall Street, getting a job, you know, and I'll get a house and a boat and all that. So, you know, I always say when I die and I get to the other side, I'm going to say to God, what was that all about? What was this all about? This was not what, what I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to be doing what my dad and my brothers do. So uh, uh, many, many different things happened after that. You know, God never writes in straight lines. Eventually, I did end up in this job on Madison Avenue. And uh, I wasn't happy. I was crunching numbers all day. And then I went back to Villanova to a, a little event. And somebody dragged me to this function. And I heard a woman speaking about this place, Covenant House. And I thought, well, all right, I'll, I'll do that. I'll go there one night a week after work. I'll take a different subway and I'll hand out brownies to homeless kids. And it was really doing that week after week that really the desire began to grow. Like, this is what I want to be doing. I writing the book that I remember going to a meeting with some top level executive. And he said, you know, we have now, I'll make up some 60 billion in assets right now. And by the end of the decade, we have to get to hundred billion in assets. And that's the goal. That's the goal you all need to work for. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's not my goal. I'm not saying it's a bad goal. I'm not saying it's immoral, but that's not what I want to devote my life to. And so I left my job shortly after that and joined the faith community and started making $12 a week and learning how to pray three hours a day. Yeah. So that really was the start. Well, and I, I think that part of this is realizing in ourselves that we have to take control of our, uh, our conception of success, right? We can't let yes. someone else define success for us. Specifically, as we being a Catholic people, we have an eternal perspective. You know, there is a sense of, yeah, I need to be prudent. I've got you, as you mentioned, I've got family to take care of. I've got all these other, other responsibilities. And yet at the same time, so often because of that, we abdicate our definition of success to someone else. And we say, okay, right. well, you, you tell me what it means for me to be successful, uh, supervisor, boss, whomever else. Uh, and 
And we end up on, you know, we talk about it all the time in, in colloquial terms. We, we end up in the rat race or the treadmill or the never ending cycle of uh, just making the next paycheck so that we can make the next payment on our thing rather than looking at what actually using your 60 billion to 100 billion, what actually is going to make a difference in this world 10 years from now, 100 years from now. Because I guarantee me making money for my company is not necessarily the thing that's going to change the world or make a that's difference right. in an individual person's life. That's right. That's right. And and I think, right, we know what, what our society and world defines as success today, right? It's how much money you make, how big your house is, what kind of clothes you have, what kind of car. We know that. We know that. But that's all surface, you know? And uh, I and you want to lead a life that's much deeper than that. That has really nothing to do with, you know, how, how expensive is our wristwatch? Well, and interestingly, um, I think we often miss how recent these kinds of goals are. We, we tend to think, well, these are the same kind of goals that our, our uh, parents and grandparents and their parents had. And yet the cost of living these days, which is defined by our, our technology and our ease and everything else around us, uh, is not the same cost of living that came before. And their goals, even 50 years ago, were very different than the goals that we end up making for ourselves and for our society today. That's really true. I mean, my grandmother's goals were how to survive in the middle of the Depression, raising five kids when her husband just died, you yeah. know? My dad's goals were, you know, how do I join the uh, Coast Guard and, uh, you know, <laughs> provide a living for my, you know, it was very modest goals. He went to college at night while I was a baby, you know. So it was really, how do we survive? How do we put food on the table? And, you know, they were very, very basic thing. And faith was the central part to that. And the church and the parish and that was very, very, very central to that. And I was very fortunate and blessed that I grew up in that kind of family and community. I think it's also not only have the goals changed over the last couple of generations, uh, they're also different based on socioeconomic level. And you're dealing right now at Spectrum Youth and Family Services with people who are on the margins and, and on the edge of whether or not they're going to survive this next month or not. What do you see as success right now for you? And also what have you learned about success from the people you serve? Uh, the people we serve at Spectrum, they're young people. Uh, most of them grew up in poverty, family dysfunction, you know, parents who were in prison, parents who suffer from addiction, the youth themselves may have mental health disorders, uh, dropped out of school, former gang members, in and out of the foster care system, in and out of prison themselves. So these are young people who have really, really struggled, you know. And they come to Spectrum. We have drop-in center. I was there this afternoon where they can get free hot lunch, free hot dinner, change of clothes. And for kids who literally have nowhere to live, they live with us. You know, we have a warming shelter in the winter, a regular shelter, and then apartments where they live. So it's a wonderful thing. You know, the kids have really struggled. And success for me is watching these young people thrive start to improve, feel good enough to even get a job, hold on to a job, maybe go back to school, maybe go back to college. You know, there's, there's a young woman on my board of directors who I report to, who 15 years ago was a homeless youth uh, living in our shelter. And now she's got a bachelor's degree, great job apartment. You know, there's a young man, I get a text from him every morning 
he was my I was his counselor at Covenant House in 1981. First 15 years I knew him, he was mostly in prison. And this past uh, Thanksgiving, I went to his 24th anniversary of sobriety from drug addiction. I'm the godfather for his daughter. And uh, it's an amazing story. He should really be dead by now or he should be in a life sentence, but he's not. So that's a tremendous success. And now I've seen him go on to help so many other people overcome their addiction to drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of successes I feel really good about. Knowing also TL, in this time of work, you're not gonna succeed with everybody. That would be impossible, right? And in my book, I write about a young man who killed one of my staff, who stabbed a 65 year old nun to death to get money for drugs about a young man who I cared about greatly in Burlington, who took his own life. So it's not the kind of work where you're just gonna have one success after the other. But I think even the times there are tragedies, there are things that I've learned from those things. And I just really, I try to focus as much as I can on the young people who have done well and who are now contributing and helping. There's a young woman who raised $5,000 for us last week in this event we called the sleep out. I remember five years ago, dropped out of college, uh, suffering from real psychological difficulties, no family. And it makes me feel so good to see her thrive, bachelor's degree now and raising money for us so we can help others. Mm -hmm. We're talking today with Mark Redmond. He is the executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. He spent over 40 years working with homeless and at-risk youth and recently has written a book entitled Called a Memoir, where he shares the story of his own journey uh, into this life of service. So, Mark, just now you mentioned among all of the successes that you experienced, you mentioned a story that uh, that has broken your heart. And I uh, recently, as I was doing research for this conversation, I read an, a number of different interviews. One of them, you talk about a story. Uh, you were asked if you've ever brought your faith overtly into the work that you do at Spectrum, because Spectrum is not an apostolate. Uh, it's a secular uh, organization that cares for those on the margins. Uh, and you tell a story of a time that you did bring it in overtly and thought that it helped but found out later that that person ended up taking their life. That's that's the story. That's I did not put it in the book for a variety of reasons. But yeah, a reporter asked me, "Do you ever bring, you know, verbally?" And I said, "No." But one time we had a young woman. She suffered from an eating disorder. The uh, physician's assistant called me and said she will die soon from this eating disorder. She's starving herself to death. This girl had suffered tremendous family dysfunction. I think she'd been sexually assaulted as a kid. And uh, I was, saw her read. She would sit at the top of a street and read a book. And this went by. I waved her and I came back and I said, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And I started to walk away and she leapt off the bench and she said, it's working. It's working. Your prayers are working. I'm feeling better. You know, and I felt so good. And a couple of weeks later, I got a call from a social worker that she had taken her life, you know. And uh, we all just felt so, so, so terrible, so terrible, you know. And there was a funeral service for her. And I got up and told that story, you know, and I burst into tears actually telling it. And I said at the funeral service, I said, it's tragedy what happened. But I do believe that young woman knew she was loved. You know, Mm -hmm. she suffered, had a very, very tough life, 
lot of terrible things happened to her. But I do believe for some period in her life, she knew that she was loved by you, the people who are here in this church right now. So, yeah. But yeah, other than that, yeah, that that's so it's interesting. You re, you remember that story. You know, I look at um, I look at that and, and faith is central to your life. It's central to mine. Uh, but I, I examine how often do I use the statement I'm praying for you? And this is not to cast any aspersions on on this incident and in your life. But I look at how many of the times I might say I'm praying for you as a way to um, almost like the, the, the gospel says, uh, the person comes to the door and you say, oh, be well, be fed, and uh, send them away without actually caring for the needs. And so to say, oh, I'm praying for you rather than actually just being present to that person in that moment, um, I think that a lot of times we think, oh, well, if I am overt about my faith, then uh, then then that's going to leave all the witness that I need to, rather than saying, I'm going to show my faith through these actions in a way that actually might leave a longer lasting impact than just the words. Right. That's an interesting way to put it. I mean, when people ask me, so why do you do this work? I will say to them, my faith, my Catholic faith is central to why I do this, you know? And if they want to know more, I'm happy to tell them. Yeah. but I do say that I, I wouldn't be doing this work if it wasn't for my faith. I, I, and I truly believe that. So let's come back to this, this story of your discerning this call into this lifestyle. You were, you were working in the business world. You began to, uh, to spend some time weekly at Covenant House. Where's the transition from a little bit of time to, hey, this really is the thing that that fulfills me and makes a difference and recognizing that as a specific call that God was calling you into. So it's so funny. So my plan was this, I'm going to go there and hand out brownies once a week. I'm going to pursue my business career. And then when I've made enough money in that business career, then I'll, then I'll look to do something like, you know, a full-time ministry. And I always joke this woman, Marge Crawford, who I consider a real saint. I went in to visit her and, she said, yeah, that'd be great. We would love to have you, uh, you know, you could come here once a week. But what we really think you should think about is we have this faith community and it's $12 a week and it's a one-year commitment. You live here in poverty and we pray together every day. In fact, we have an opening. You have to come on orientation. I have an opening on May 5th. I'll put you down for that. And I literally, my mind broke into a sweat, sweat, thinking, lady, 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 that's not, this is not in the plan. It's not in the plan. Um, And I remember thinking, calm down, calm down, Mark. You can fix this with one phone call. It's one phone call. That's it. You're out, you know? And I did plan to make that phone call, but I never made the phone call because I kept going week after week. I get very involved with my parish. I started to learn about centering prayer. I started to pray every day. And I suddenly realized over a couple of months, like, no, I should... I should go on that orient. I'll go on the orientation, but I'm still not really going to do this, you know? And of course I spent the week there and at the end of the week, I was like, this is what I got to do, you know? And I wrote in the book, most people thought I was crazy. You know, I was throwing away all this opportunity, a great job. I had a great apartment in the Upper East Side. And I went to see this Monsignor from my home parish in Long Island. And I sat with him and I said, everybody thinks I'm crazy to do this. But I don't know how long I'm going to do it for. One year, two years, the rest of my life. But I believe when I'm done doing it, God is going to take care of me. And he looked at me and said, 
I can't believe it. what faith you have. What faith? And I kept thinking, he's a priest, though. He's given his whole life. I'm given a year. He kept saying, what faith you have? What faith? Like, it really knocked him over, you know, that I would say this, you know. And uh, he passed away. He's somebody I prayed to also. He was really a holy man. But I remember that really struck me. And there weren't a lot of people who thought I was doing the right thing, but he thought I was doing the right thing. And I thought I was doing the right thing. And, and yeah, I did do the right thing. And 41 years later, I'm, I'm still at, you know, people think, oh, this is a phase Mark is going through. It's a 41 year phase. Were you married by this point in time? No, I was not. I was, and you know, and I, it's funny, I had a one person show on Broadway two years ago. My mom, my parents are still alive, 91. My dad couldn't go. My mom went and I said, Hey, I was lucky. My parents paid for my college education. I didn't have to take out any loans. Mm -hmm. You know, I was really fortunate in that regard that I had the ability, you know, to say, hey, I'm going to walk away from this career on Madison Avenue and get $12 a week. So I was really, and I was single. So I was fortunate I was able to do that. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the story of a saint, of an American saint, uh, St. Catherine Drexel who looked around and saw the needs of the indigenous population in the United States and went to the Pope, uh, went all the way to Rome and said to the Pope, I I'm, I'm see this need for missionaries mm -hmm. to come and to work among the, the native peoples to care for their needs. And he looked at her and said, well, why don't you go? <laughs> and... And so this this then of course began that movement of her of her charitable work. Uh, you right. be the missionary, and I think so often we expect that God is going to call someone else, and so we go. Maybe we take some time and we spend time in prayer, praying that God would see, you know, just as Jesus said, praying that God would send workers. The Lord of the harvest would send workers into the fields for their white under harvest, and we fully expect that the result of that prayer is that, is that God's going to call someone else. And so and often, sometimes it's us. <laughs> so often. There was, a, where was it? There was a famous book in the sixties. That man is you. Yeah. I forget who, who the name of the priest who wrote about that. Right. That man is you, which comes from the old Testament. Yeah. You know, as I look at your story though, what, the thing that stands out is that you made yourself available. And I think that that's really the answer for all of us as we are trying to discern God's will for our lives is to put ourselves in God's presence, to ask that question, God, what do you want me to do? And to make ourselves available to discern that next step. You know, maybe, maybe I'm going to discern just a little while and then something else is going to become clear, but maybe like you, uh, there's always that back door of, well, one of these days I'm going to quit doing this. Uh, and yet just day by day, making yourself available before God. And it's such a beautiful story that we're going to continue just right after this break, as we're talking today with Mark Redmond, the executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. The new book is entitled Called, a memoir uh, you can pick it up wherever fine books are sold and come and be a part of the ongoing conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. we got a number of things there for you to see. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to outside the walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today in this season of Lent, focusing on the, uh, the pillar of almsgiving and our need and our responsibility to care for the common good. And, and as the baptized, what that means for us as we're called not only to care for those in our family and in our our parish community, but also to care for the needs of the world. We are a church with a preferential option for the poor, uh, so much so that St. John Chrysostom and the Cappadocian Fathers were very strong in their language for how we should behave when we're giving to the poor. And I think it was St. Basil. uh, I'll have to go look here in a bit, but I'm pretty sure it was St. Basil who said, the shoes that you have rotting in your closet were stolen from the poor. That extra pair that you that you aren't even using and that they're going to waste, he goes so far as to say that they're stolen from the poor. And this is something that we ought to sit with and wrestle with. Am I using the materials that God has given me in a way that that glorifies the kingdom, or is it something else? So today, as we look at this, this concept of almsgiving, this requirement for us as Catholics, to have this preferential option for the poor, we are talking with Mark Redmond, who is the executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. He has a new book that, uh, that he wrote over the course of the pandemic titled Called a Memoir. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on air today. Yes, yes. Thanks for having me on, TL. This is great. Mark, for the last 40 years, you have been working specifically with, uh, with homeless and at-risk youth. This is heavy work. Caring for the poor is heavy work, and it's very easy to get discouraged. It's easy to look at all of the problems of the world and say, I, I, I can't fix everything. You know, we, we oftentimes we get into this idea of, oh, I'm going to charge in with my, uh, with my acumen, with my experience, and I'm going to fix everyone's life. Uh, this is often, I think there's a book about this called Toxic Charity as well, that we come in and we think we're going to solve these problems by going on a short-term mission trip or by donating this one little thing or giving that hour a week handing out brownies, right? I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix everything. And then you get into the actual slog of doing the work and you see the the messiness of people's lives, the pain that they're experiencing, all of the layers of dysfunction that have brought them to this place. And it can be very easy to to throw up your hands and say, I'm not making a difference. I'm not fixing anything. How have you, through these 41 years of working, managed to keep afloat, managed to keep the hope and to recognize your place in that call in serving those around you? So that's a good question. I get asked that all the time because people say, how do you stay so optimistic? How do you keep at it? And there's a bunch of reasons. You know, I realize it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You know, you can't work crazy hours. You have to take time for yourself. You have to exercise. I have a wonderful wife who I adore. I have two wonderful sons. And but I also say it really is my spiritual life. I believe that is central to it. And uh, every morning I start every day off with a cup of coffee and then I have my own prayer time. It's the first thing I do. And I have my little routine, which is, uh, I start with what's called the prayer of oblation, which I'm sure you know is, mm-hmm. 
and then I do 20 minutes of centering prayer slash Christian meditation. And also uh, I do Lexio Divina. I look at whatever the gospel reading is for today and I do Lexio Divina. And then I just kind of do some intentions. You know, I think about the different saints who I admire and I ask them for guidance. I pray for the Pope every day. I pray for my own family. I pray for my parents, especially my dad who has dementia. And then I uh, read a poem. I heard a monk on a podcast say every day he reads one poem. So I read one poem every morning as well. So that's what I do every morning. And then I fast one day a week. There's a group of men in my parish. We have had a men's group for many years. And then last Lent, a group of us, we were all doing it, our meetings over Zoom. I don't know, maybe it was me who had the idea and said, hey, why don't we do morning prayer for Lent every Monday morning at 7 a.m.? So there's a group of guys that will do morning prayer and then we fast that Monday. And when Lent ended, we just kept doing it. So we've now, you know, gone, we did it all last year and now we're over one year. And um, that's important. And I, we still monthly have a big meeting either in Zoom or starting to do it in person now with the men from my parish. And then I try and go on retreat once a year. There's a monastery about two hours away from here in Vermont. It's a very special place. And I, and I try and go on retreat. So all of those things, TL, I think really nourish me and feed me spiritually and are key to why I've been able to continue on you're right. You know, I talked earlier about I had a staff member killed. I had my face slashed open. I needed 12 stitches in my face. I know many young people. There's a long list of youth I pray for every day who committed suicide, who I've known over the years. So there's a lot of sadness in this work. There's also a lot of joy. But I think having a spiritual life and spiritual practices are like that are key to why I've been able to stay at it for so long. Earlier on, we talked about how often we let other people define success for us is mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes we think that success is dependent on us, right? I'm going to let someone else define success. And if I'm going to reach that success, it's only going to be through my own effort, through my own prowess. And I think that the, the danger with that is one, we have unachievable goals. Uh, and two, we have, uh, this mistaken thought that, well, I'm just going to pull myself by my own bootstraps and, and somehow I'm going to make it all work. I think part of this is part of what Lent is about. And part of the reason that we fast during Lent is to show us that we aren't able to do it on our own and we need the graces of, of prayer. We need the graces of almsgiving and, and of fasting in order to really live the spiritual life. Um, and so I, what I hear from this prayer practice of yours is this, this interdependence of almsgiving and prayer and, right. and also of fasting, that each of these things complements one another and makes the other possible. It's true. I mean, in terms of success, I always remember, so I flew up for the, my first interview at Spectrum, 2002, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I was one of 36 candidates. None of these, it was board members and staff and one of the board members asked me, so what do you think of outcomes measurement? You know, what is your take on that about measuring outcomes? And I remember, I, again, this is a secular organization. Spectrum is not a religious organization, although it was founded by ministers 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I said, there's a famous letter from Thomas Merton to, to uh, 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 he just died, uh, um, an activist, letter to a young activist. 
and Thomas Merton wrote, do not depend on the hope of results, you know? And then I paraphrase, when you're involved in a ministry such as you are, Jim Forrest is who it was too, and he was uh, trying to stop the Vietnam War. You know, you may achieve results opposite to what you actually. So I quoted that and this one board member's eyebrows went up and I thought I either just completely blew this interview <laughs> or this woman's really impressed with my answer. But it's true, it's really true. Do not depend on that. And I can't tell you how many times, TL, I've seen a young person leave Spectrum and boy, it didn't look good. And, you know, I remember running into a young man at an adult homeless shelter a few years later. Thinking, oh, man, that is so sad. But then a few years later after that, I ran into him on the sidewalk. He's doing OK. He's got his own apartment. So, like, God will surprise you. I mean, this the book, there's a chapter in my book about a young man, a young man who'd been homeless. We took him in. He did so well, went back to college and we hired him. And unfortunately, I contacted him. I said, I'm writing this book. Can I use you in the book? I won't use your name, blah, blah, blah. And when the book came out, I said, I'd like to get together with you. I want to give you the book. And he came to me and he looked terrible. And he said, I'm addicted to heroin and methamphetamines. Every dollar I have goes to drugs. I get food out of the food shelf. I said, I'm giving you this book. I want you to read that chapter, okay? And so he texted me that night and he said, I'm in tears because this book now has reminded me of who I once was and who I might yet become again. And then listen to this TL. Then I heard from him four months later, I just got out of rehab, Mark, and I'm clean now. And I've become a Christian. He sent me a picture of him getting baptized. And I've heard from him again recently. And now he's like, I don't know, five months clean. But I mean, again, it didn't look like if I just looked at right, you know, where he was point in time, I would have thought, but I, I said, I don't care. I would love to sell a lot of copies of this book, but if nobody else buys this book, it was worth writing it for that one person Yeah, because it sparked in him a memory of who he once was before he got addicted to drugs. There's that yeah. whole story of Mother Teresa saying, I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. Exactly. So I'm not looking at the person in a way to say, well, how can I turn this into a success or uh, what outcome can I reach, right? I'm not looking at their their outcome. I'm not looking at uh, any kind of box that I can put them in. I'm looking into the life of a person who is hurting and and doesn't see a way out. And that's the person that I'm after. I'm, I'm living in that individual moment with that individual person uh, for as long as as we have the the privilege to be able to do so. Yeah, I have a bunch of posters in my office. One of is of Mother Teresa, and it's a picture of her leaning down to help somebody, you know, in the street. And it's some quote where she says something like, don't worry about numbers. Just start by helping people and start with the person next to you. Yeah. Right? You know, and then the other picture of is, is uh, St. Oscar Romero. I have a picture of him, too. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that was, she really was a model for me. We do have to measure, you know, we can't just say, oh, we're helping, you know, we do expect and we do measure, you know, yeah. how many kids got a job and things like that. But it's still, it goes beyond that. You can't capture the spirit of what we do just by that. This last week, uh, we had our, um, we did readings from year C because the scrutiny was done on, on the vigil mass and the readings from year C for, for, the gospel is the story of the prodigal son. 
and one of the points that our priest brought out is that very often, and you tell me, you tell me if he's right here, very often what we see with people who experience homelessness is, for the most part, a breakdown of relationship. That, uh, that like the son and the prodigal, prodigal son story, uh, the relationship with his family was broken. And so he didn't have anyone to lean on when he was off in that foreign country for whatever reason, whether it was self-inflicted or someone else. And he said that very often that's what we see with homelessness today is that whether it be through uh, dysfunction on the part of the family or on the part of the individual, that very often there's no one there for them and tied that to our call to care for the, the poor and the marginalized, to be that community for people who otherwise would have no community. It's really true. Most of the young people, you're right, who come to us grew up in extreme family dysfunction. I can't tell you how many kids will say to me spontaneously, yeah, I do have a mother or a father, but they're more like a peer to me than a parent, meaning they just haven't been responsible parents. You know, I've, again, these are kids saying this to me. Mm-hmm. Then again, maybe it's a small percent, but some of the wealthiest families in Vermont have had kids end up homeless or kids come to Spectrum, you know, and it's often because of addiction, you know, but we've seen a very high rate of success because in it's like the prodigal son. In the end, if the young person turns it around and there is a stable family to welcome them back into the fold, their chances of, you know, one of the most successful lawyers in our state 15 years ago was living in the woods because he was addicted to drugs and had to drop out of college. And now he's been clean and he's very successful. So we have a lot of stories like that. Yeah. Final thoughts. What do you want to leave us with? So tonight? I love to quote this. I sent this out to all my religious friends there. I watched the crown. I don't have any use for the British royalty, but I love the crown. Don't ask me why. <laughs> and it's a beautiful, I, the last season and the season before, uh, Prince, uh, the queen's husband, what's his name? He just passed away, Philip, I guess. And uh, he's like going through a midlife crisis and he's pretty depressed and he doesn't know what his life is all about. And he kind of, his mother had been like a nun. She'd been like a recluse and they find her in Egypt. She was working with the poor. So she shows up in Buckingham Palace and he's just embarrassed. Like, let's keep the crazy old lady, you know, in the bedroom. But she recognizes that her son is really, not doing well. And at the end of the episode, she pulls him inside and says, how's your faith? And he says, dormant. Hmm. And she says, let this be a mother's advice to her son. Find yourself a faith. It helps. No, it more than helps. It's everything. Mm -hmm. And I have sent that around to many, many people. Find yourself a faith. It's everything. So that would be my final thoughts, you know, to whoever is listening. And uh, I just appreciate it. I'm so grateful to God. I put in my book, if I got, I don't want, I want to keep living. I'm only 64. But like if I got a terminal illness diagnosis tomorrow, I'd be like, listen, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been so happy. I'm married to a wonderful person. My son is at Notre Dame. I have a son, a freshman in Notre Dame. My other son in his mid-30s decided he wanted to go back to school and became a nurse. He's a psychiatric nurse now in New Hampshire. Two wonderful sons. Uh, the book, The Moth, your show. I mean, I just couldn't be more pleased with, you know, it's been a great ride. So yeah. when I get to the other side, I'm going to say, 
Right? This wasn't what I had planned, but I'm awfully glad it worked out the way it did, God. Thank you. <laughs> We've been talking today with Mark Redmond. Uh, he is the executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. The new book is entitled Called a Memoir. We've got a link to it over on our social media. Mark, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. TL, this is great. Thank you so much for inviting me. If you missed any part of my conversation with Mark Redmond or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. It looks a little bit different now because my hosting provider kind of forced me into a uh, to a template upgrade, but it looks nice. So go take a look, listen to a few episodes. Uh, there as well, you can find access to additional content. Each and every week, we record an extra segment with our guest uh, to give to those who support the show through Patreon. That Patreon link is just as easy to find as it always was, right there in the top right-hand corner of the navigation bar. It says Patreon. That's it. Just click that link. You can learn more about our Patreon support community and what it takes to be a part of that. And while you're at it, look around that little site because the older uh, extra segments from a couple of years ago, those are now available to listen to. Get a sense of uh, what that community is like and consider becoming a part of it. Now let's turn our attention to our readings from scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, magisterial documents, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more at verbum.com. Our reading from scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. And rather than provide my normal brief commentary on the scripture, I'm going to go ahead and give you the commentary from St. Basil the Great that we talked about a little bit earlier in the show. Uh, I'm getting the translation in this instance from the popular patristics volume on social justice. This is St. Basil of Caesarea responding to that same uh, passage of scripture. Though you speak to yourself in secret, your words are examined in heaven. Thus, it is from heaven that you will receive your reply. But what sorts of things do you say to yourself? Soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry day after day. Oh, what senselessness. If you had the soul of a pig, what better news could you have given it? Are you really so animal-like, so devoid of understanding as to what is good for the soul, that you offer it the foods of the flesh and serve it the things that go into the latrine? If your soul possesses virtue... 
it is full of good works and dwells near to God. Then indeed it has many good things and should rejoice with the soul's own pure joy. But because you consider only earthly things and have made your belly into a god because you are entirely fleshly and enslaved by passions, hear the fitting appellation that is given to you, not by any human, but by the Lord himself. You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Worse even than eternal punishment is this scorn on account of your folly. In just a little while, his life will be snatched away. And what is he thinking? I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. Well done, I would say for my part. The treasuries of injustice well deserve to be torn down. With your own hands, raise these misbegotten structures. Destroy the granaries from which no one has ever gone away satisfied. Demolish every storehouse of greed, pull down the roofs, tear away the walls, expose the moldering grain to the sunlight. Lead forth from the prison the fettered wealth, vanquish the gloomy vaults of mammon. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. But if you fill these larger ones, what do you intend to do next? Will you tear them down yet again only to build them up once more? What could be more ridiculous than this? Incessant toil, laboring to build, and then laboring to tear down again. If you want storehouses, you have them in the stomachs of the poor. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. The things deposited there are not devoured by moths, nor are they spoiled by corruption, nor do thieves break in and steal them. But you reply, I will give to the needy when I have filled the second set of barns. You are so sure that the years of your life will be many? Beware, lest death the pursuer catch up to you sooner than you expect. And even your promise is not a token of goodness, but rather a sign of your evil intent. For you promise, not so that you might give in the future, but rather so that you might evade responsibility in the present. At this very moment, what prevents you from giving? Are not the needy near at hand? Are not your barns already full? Is not your heavenly reward waiting? Is not the commandment crystal clear? The hungry are perishing. The naked are freezing to death. The debtors are unable to breathe. And will you put off showing mercy until tomorrow? Listen to Solomon. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. How many precepts you ignore since your ears are plugged with avarice? How much gratitude you ought to have shown to your benefactor? How joyful and radiant you ought to have been that you are not one of those who crowd in at others' doors, but rather others are knocking at your door. But now you lower your eyes and quicken your step, muttering hasty responses lest anyone pry some small coin from your grasp you know how to say one thing only. I do not have, I cannot give, I myself am poor. You are poor indeed and bereft of all goodness, poor in love, poor in kindness, poor in faith towards God, poor in eternal hope. Make your brothers and sisters sharers of your grain. Give to the needy today what rots away tomorrow. Truly, this is the worst kind of avarice. 
not even to share perishable goods with those in need. But whom do I treat unjustly, you say, by keeping what is my own? Tell me, what is your own? What did you bring into this life? From where did you receive it? It is as if someone were to take the first seat in the theater, then bar anyone else from attending, so that one person alone enjoys what is offered for the benefit of all in common. This is what the rich do. They seize common goods before others have the opportunity, then claim them as their own by right of preemption. For if we all took only what was necessary to satisfy our own needs, giving the rest to those who lack, no one would be rich, no one would be poor, and no one would be in need. Did you not come naked from the womb? And will you not return naked to the earth? Where then did you obtain your belongings? If you say that you acquired them by chance, then you deny God, since you neither recognize your Creator nor are grateful to the one who gave these things to you. But if you acknowledge that they were given to you by God, then tell me, for what purpose did you receive them? Is God unjust when he distributes to us unequally the things that are necessary from life? Why then are you wealthy while another is poor? Why else but so that you might receive the reward of benevolence and faithful stewardship, while the poor are honored for patient endurance in their struggles? But you, stuffing everything into the bottomless pockets of your greed, assume that you wrong no one. How many do you, in fact, dispossess? Who are the greedy? Those who are not satisfied with what suffices for their own needs. Who are the robbers? Those who take for themselves what rightly, rightfully belong to everyone. And you, are you not greedy? Are you not a robber? The things you received in trust as stewardship. Have you not appropriated them for yourself? Is not the person who strips another of clothing called a thief? And those who do not clothe the naked when they have the power to do so, should they not be called the same? The bread you are holding back is for the hungry. The clothes you keep put away are for the naked. The shoes that are rotting away with disuse are for those who have none. The silver you keep buried in the earth is for the needy, and thus... You are guilty of injustice towards as many as you might have aided and did not. This exceptionally challenging reading comes from St. Basil the Great, who's writing at the end of the 4th century, so very early on in Christian thought. And it is a challenging reading because he is writing it to us, to those of us who do actually have the means to provide some care and sustenance for others. And we who live in the West all have that kind of means even those who among us who are relatively poor by our standards today. So I hope that it challenges us to look for creative ways that we can go out and answer that call that calls us to care for the poor and the needy and the outcast and those who are outside of our walls. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Drs. Michael and Julie Highlands and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, look through the episodes, but click on that Patreon link to learn more about joining that patron support community. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.